My name is Teresa. And my name is Beth. And today we are talking about the history of feminism. And that may sound boring, but it really, really is not. Because to get an understanding of, of the history of feminism will really help you understand why feminism is why it is today and also why our society is the way it is today exactly and uh, you know some of these ideologies that are around nowadays they had a they had a start so you know we'll look into where they came from the different women of the time periods and really our main focus will be on what people nowadays these so-called feminism historians will call the history of feminism that is first second and third wave uh, which you've probably heard before. Um, as Teresa and I have found, the history of feminism is is broad, and you know we've stuffed them into these three time periods. But a lot of what was going on with feminism is is overarching. It intertwines through all of the past hundred something years, you know, and then even before, you know, feminism doesn't just pop up one day when some woman woke up and said, "Hey, gee, I think we should have rights." You know, <laughs> it's not really how it worked. <laughs> So we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about um, what we think the history of feminism really looks like and, you know, um, but focusing on what people in today's society say the history of feminism is, these so-called first, second, and third waves. Yeah, and I think we have some really interesting um, facts about each of the the waves that you'll be interested in that people really do not talk about nowadays Um specifically the first and uh the beginning of the second waves um you know they're they're kind of just talked about in half sentence fragments and you don't really get a sense of what they were really about which um i believe we're we're going to delve a little bit uh deeper into so um let's just go ahead and start um Shall we start with the first wave, Beth? Yes, yes, if you wouldn't mind starting okay. it out, because all our history sure. books tell us are, and then women got the vote. So give us a little bit more detail yeah. than uh, the average U.S. history book. <laughs> exactly right. You know, history begins in 1920 for, for feminism, which is absolutely not the case. So um, if you do any sort of research about the history of feminism, you will you will get... Um, conflicting views, but in general, um, people uh, actually go back to even ancient Greece to, I believe, mention Plato. Um, there's, I think, maybe one quote of him saying that women are equal to men, uh, at least in dignity back then. And then they casually mention a couple of women in medieval Europe or post-Reformation Europe, um, one of them is Hildegard von Bingen, who was a Catholic. Yeah. They mention her. Yeah. They, <laughs> do, I don't think she was a feminist, do, but okay. <laughs> hard to believe. Hard to believe for sure. And then it's really just fast forwarding through all those hundreds of years to the Seneca Falls Convention in New York in 1848, which... You know, again, who has ever heard of that with regards to the history of feminism? It, it's it's kind of a a forgotten event in in history, but they claim that it was the first kind of event to kick off the women's movement 
and led very specifically to the 1920 U.S. constitutional amendment that opened the doors for um, the 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 vote for women. So um, just to talk a little bit about that, because it it does seem like it was um, a a fairly important event, even though it was on. When you really think about it, it wasn't a, a huge event with regards to attendees. At least there was two hundred two to three hundred people were there, um, including Frederick Douglass, by the way, which I thought was very interesting. They tried to work together, both abolitionist movement and the the women's movement early on, and his presence there, I think, uh, spoke to that. So, um, yeah, it is considered kind of the beginning of the, the women's movement, and they now like to say the beginning of the first wave of feminism. Um, and the purpose of this conference was to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition in the rights of women in the U.S. And it was um, pretty much uh, solely organized by uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. Um, I believe that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was kind of the brains behind the organization. She wrote um, the speeches and such, and apparently Lucretia was more of the uh, orator. And so she would go out and give uh, these rousing speeches. So Katie Stanton, she wrote the official document that came out of this conference. It was called the Declaration of Sentiments, which essentially laid out a list of grievances and societal slash political injustices where the female sex, in their opinion, had been disregarded or discluded from society. Um, and if I can, I would like to read these these claims because they are just incredibly fascinating, um, and I think we can analyze them um, afterwards, if that's okay, Beth. Yeah, let's do that. So the document is, um, the first couple paragraphs are virtually lifted completely from the Declaration of Independence. I think the only difference is... Um, um, when it says, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Uh, the rest of it, the, the paragraphs are, are directly from the Declaration of Independence. Real original, um, ladies. Then... <laughs> <laughs> you just took something from another document and you called it your own, added and woman in there and we're good. All right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, I think the intention was to lend the document gravitas and, you know, credence from, from the founding fathers, but, they, um, they said know, it well it enough just, already, no need for new words. So <laughs> exactly. Um, so it quickly goes into, it's just a one page document and, um, it quickly goes into the injuries that, um, at least Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, uh, thought um, men had perpetrated against women. And if you think I'm just paraphrasing meanly, I will directly quote from this document. The history of mankind is the history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, 
let facts be submitted to a candid world. And here begins the list of facts. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable rights to the elective franchise or the right to vote. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. He has withheld from her rights which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both natives and foreigners. Having deprived her of this first right of a citizen, the elective franchise, thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, he has oppressed her on all sides. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages she earns. He has made her morally an irresponsible being, as she can commit many crimes with impunity, provided they be done in the presence of her husband. In the covenant of marriage, she is compelled to promise obedience to her husband, he becoming, to all intents and purposes, her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and to administer chastisement. He has so framed the laws of divorce as to what shall be the proper causes of divorce. In cases of separation, to whom the guardianship of the children shall be given, as to be wholly regardless of the happiness of women. The law in all cases, going upon the false supposition of the supremacy of man, and giving all power into his hands. After depriving her of all rights as a married woman, if single and the owner of property, he has taxed her to support a government which recognizes her only when her property can be made profitable to it. He has monopolized nearly all the profitable employments, and from those she is permitted to follow, she receives but a scanty remuneration. He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine, or law, she is not known. He has denied her the facilities for obtaining thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. He allows her in church as well as state, but a subordinate position, claiming apostolic authority for her exclusion from the ministry, and with some exceptions, from any public participation in the affairs of the church. He has created a false public sentiment by giving to the world a different code of morals for men and women, by which moral delinquencies which exclude women from society are not only tolerated but deemed of little account in man. He has usurped the prerogative of Jehovah himself, claiming it as his right to assign for her a sphere of action, when that belongs to her conscience and her God, has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. And she finishes by saying, Now, in view of this entire disfranchisement of one half of the people of this country, their social and religious degradation, in view of the unjust laws above mentioned, and because women do feel themselves aggrieved, oppressed, and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights, 
We insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of these United States. Whoa. What do you think, Beth? That was something else. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little extreme. They pretty much blame everything on men, but it's really interesting the things that they're blaming on men. It, it it is. It's it's really it's eye opening because while I read it for the first time, it it was almost it was jarring because it's it's so similar to what the feminist movement looks like now. It felt like I was almost reading a Huffington Post article from five years ago. <laughs> Like, yeah, it feels like feminism really, truly hasn't changed much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what does that tell us about mm. the movement? To me, it tells us that the quote unquote radical feminism we're seeing now is really actually not far off from what the original feminists wanted. Yeah. I mean, look, just listen to what they just said. From the very beginning of the document, it was a rage against perceived oppression and the mm. vitriol with and, and look just the vitriol against the men was so patently obvious in that document. It was mm-hmm. like said, just a, a rage against men. And also keep, keep in mind, what what are you taught in school about the first wave feminism? Oh, it's the right to vote. It's all about the right to vote. You know, it's it, that that's all they wanted. It was, it was this group of angelic women getting together to peacefully protest about the fact that they could not vote. Mm-hmm. This document 70 years before they actually got the right to vote is very clearly <laughs> that's one item in a litany of items that they that they were all about it was not all to vote um in fact um i learned in my research for this is that of the 11 excuse me of the 12 um votes at the convention the seneca falls convention 11 were unanimous and the one that was not unanimous was about the right to vote weird isn't that interesting yeah i mean it makes sense from from my research too and and we'll go into discussion on it it's like this whole right to vote people people talk of it as like it's a pre-born right of yours and women have just been withheld from it yeah on purpose and it's interesting because even women at that time period didn't think so that's right yeah interesting it's very interesting. So, as the Seneca Falls Declaration states, the, the the official document that, in a lot of feminist historians' minds, started the first uh, started the first wave. They had tons of other issues with regards to women and their perceived non participation, and then you know politics and society. And what really struck me about this document, Beth, and I may have. Um, briefly mentioned earlier is that these issues have continued until today Mm -hmm. i mean the battles they're fighting now 
started with this document or maybe didn't start with this document, but it was memorialized in this document 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the battles they fought and won have not really met a, made a dent in uh, uh, their, or they would like to have it portrayed that it really hasn't made a dent in their, their movements, um, you know, purpose. And it has definitely not made a dent in their fervor for their movement, but in fact has made them a hundred times more radical and violent and, you know, angry in the uh, second and third waves. And we can discuss why, but um, to me, it, you know, it never really was about the rights in the first place. I mean, it's about control and power and, on their, you know, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, it, it, it is, it's also a rejection of the few remnants of chauvinism that, to me, is inherent in a Protestant democratic republic, which is a completely different subject. But Yeah, <laughs> really interesting. Um, some of the things you mentioned that really stuck out to me, one, um, really mainly... Protestantism at the time and I I don't mean to be controversial here with all of this but my point being one Frederick Douglass is at this Seneca Falls convention why because these ladies were also into the anti-slavery movement at the time why because Protestantism was all about anti-slavery particularly the Quakers who Lucretia Mott was a Quaker apparently and I was looking up facts about her, and one of the things that the the um, excuse me, one of the sent- sentiments that Stanton had mentioned was that women don't have a place for ministerial roles in the church. Well, Lucretia Mott was a Quaker minister, apparently. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and when I have researched this uh, first wave with um, ties to Protestantism, the other things that protestants were really fighting at the time was prohibition that actually these two waves of um let's say the 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 prohibition movement and the women's suffrage movement were really strong at the time and eventually intertwined most likely due to the strong protestant ties between the two of them but i found out about this one group is one of the larger women's suffrage groups at the time was the women's christian temperance union whose mm. main goal at first was pretty much outlawing alcohol is really what they were going for um mainly i think a lot if you if you listen to anything about the prohibition or read anything on it like i was watching a documentary off netflix the other day on prohibition um there were a lot of drunk men at the time so the woman felt not so good that their husbands would come home drunk and it was a danger to the children. So I think a lot of what Stanton was saying was perhaps out of anger to what she was seeing at the time as well. Um, her her desire for divorce and rights was really, if my husband's a drunk, I want to be able to divorce him so I don't have to deal with him. Which I think in, in ways you, you could see, okay, well, they want to protect children, but clearly there's an issue in society or in these particular groups at the time that the men are getting drunk 
and these women right. are just wanting it, to run away and blame more all of their problems great. on men. Yeah, there's just something else going on. It's not it's like, oh, my, you know, okay, for safety of the woman, if there really was violence going on in the home, you could see that you want to protect her. But is the answer then for voting? And and, and that's really what they, they chose. Um, they were like, oh, we just need to get rid of the alcohol. It's like you, you, you're not fighting the real problem. Um, mm. And that's kind of why this whole prohibition movement moved into the woman's suffrage because it was, hey, ladies, is your husband a drunk? Well, we could just outlaw alcohol. And how do we do that? We vote for it. And mm-hmm. that'll solve all our problems. And, well, we kind of know how the prohibition turned out. Didn't really work. So, <laughs> um, right. I don't know. I just, I find that kind of interesting, the ties between the two of them. Um, mm. Yeah, absolutely. That I I didn't know. I think uh, the one other thing I wanted to point out, too, um, from what I have researched on this is that, you know, like we said, all we learn about is that it was a right and women wanted it. And as, as you have um, pointed out through your facts that, you know, women weren't really thinking of it as a right. They were kind of just, they were angry about how their lives were at the time and they wanted something else. They blamed it on men and then angrily stated that they need something else. Um, but there was this little known group at the time or little known group nowadays, very popular then who were the anti suffragist. Uh, they were not a bunch of men who didn't think women were smart enough to vote as it may sound like nowadays, but rather it was a group Mm -hmm. of women and men who just felt that women didn't need to vote, that it wasn't necessarily a right. Mm. If that makes sense. Um, so in my research on these ladies, I found some of what they declare. So, you know, we just kind of heard the one side, Stanton's declaration of sentiments on why women should vote and should have all these other things because men have taken them away from them. Um, so this little pamphlet that I found that they wrote, I don't know when it came out. It doesn't have a year on it. Neither does this article. But vote no on women's suffrage. And one of the reasons they say is because it means competition of women with men instead of cooperation. Ooh. Because 90% of the women either do not want it or do not care. Really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That is interesting. Yeah. Because in some states, more voting women than voting men will place the government under petticoat rule. Ooh. Anyway, just a few. Petticoat rule. I don't know. I guess <laughs> the woman would then be in control and they didn't like that. I guess political correctness was uh, not, not as big of a deal back then. <laughs> I guess not. I, yeah. And so then I, I found another one and this was written by, I'll actually say the lady in 1914, actually. So whew, fast forward a little bit, Grace Duffield Goodwind. Um, so she laid out some, this, the article says, uh, so she pointed out a few things that she felt were the reasons why women don't need to vote. Um, one of the ones that I liked was that because our present duties fill up the whole measure of our time and ability and our, and are such as none but ourselves can perform. Our appreciation of their importance requires us to protest against all efforts to infringe upon our rights by imposing upon us those obligations which cannot be separated from suffrage, but which, as we think, cannot be performed 
by us without the sacrifices of the high interests of our family and society. Um, wow. It's really interesting. And then another one here, it, it because it is our fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons who represent us at the ballot box. Our fathers and our brothers love us. Our husbands are our choice and one with us. Our sons are what we make them. We are content that they represent us in the cornfield, on the battlefield, and at the ballot box. And we are with them in the schoolroom, at the fireside, at the cradle, believing our representation, even at the ballot box, to be thus more full and impartial than it were, it, than it would be were the views of the few who wish suffrage adopted contrary to the judgment of the many. Really wow yeah i i just listen i found to it what fascinating. she just said though beth that is that is so fascinating listen to what she just said our husbands are our choice yeah yeah that i mean obviously not everybody's husband at the time was upsetting them like <laughs> right well and she's dead right i mean yeah, yeah. i mean it, really it shows that women didn't think that they were unrepresented in any way and they felt that they had power already they had power because they were the ones raising men they mm -hmm. had influences on them and they felt like that was done at home and i mean even from that first um point that um this uh, uh mrs goodwin pointed out was that they they have their hands tied up already they're busy at home trying to raise a family uh, one last thing that I wanted to point out from this time period as well was that um, suffrage was actually big all over the world. You know, here we're talking about American movement of suffrage, but it was pretty much around the same time period. All these other countries are fighting for suffrage. Um, so in Great Britain, interestingly enough, the the ladies of that time, they called them suffragettes a suffragist um, and they were kind of the more violent ones um, there's an article that I'm looking at off theguardian.com talking about the 1910s um, excuse me and there's a quote in here that says women across the UK carried out midnight attacks on MPs houses churches railway stations and post offices armed with guns bombs and a belief that the only way to win the vote for women was to follow in the violent footsteps of men. Oh my gosh. Which is like crazy. It's not just peaceful women, like you said. <laughs> in public places, railway stations and post offices, guns and bombs, um, they felt that they needed to give violence. So then I, I went to another website and I found a quote from one of the ladies at the time period. Her name was Christabel Pankhurst. And in 1913, she said this, if men use explosives and bombs for their own purpose, they call it war. And throwing a bomb that destroys other people is then described as a glorious and heroic deed. Why should women not use the same weapons as men? It is not only war we have declared, we are fighting for a revolution. Wow. So, so really So I have a question. Why on earth would this just not... Why, why isn't this in the, the history books about feminism? I don't think people want it there. Because I mean, it's extreme. <laughs> how, how is it okay for women to perpetrate violence and get away with it in the name of, you know, rights or perceived oppression? And if men do it, they're imprisoned. Yeah. 
it's it's honestly crazy some of the stuff that went on in this time period i mean we're just touching on a little bit of it um but it's amazing it's just it's not so simple it's not it was a right and women were deprived of it and the women saw that so they wanted it and they got the right wow that is that is definitely um yeah remember that remember that ladies (laughs) and gentlemen who are listening, you know, when, when, uh, you hear about the first wave of feminism, remember that as well as the peaceful protests, you know, with the, you know, we just want the right to vote signs. Remember the, the violent protests, uh, in, in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, and, and kind of just to piggyback off of what you just said. So yeah, they finally did get the right to vote, uh, perhaps despite those women who didn't really care whether or not they did or not. So in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was passed and gave women the right to vote. Um, So they they got what they were after, or at least one of the things they were after. Mm -hmm. And it is said, you know, the Seneca Falls document is said to have been kind of like that first document that led to uh, 70 years later led directly to the passage of the, the 19th amendment. So it's, um, only two or 300 people were there, but it was, uh, according to at least feminist historians, um, a, a really important document in the, the beginning of the women's rights movement. So Hmm. I was just going to say that I think that we, we ought to point out now too, you know, our whole discussion on this first wave isn't women shouldn't vote. No, our, our, our discussion is let's look at the history. Where did these things come from? Exactly. And who are these so-called feminists? You know, if you think, okay, you can think, oh yeah, women can vote and whatnot. But do you think at that time period you would want to follow Stanton? I mean, she didn't really sound like the nicest lady, you know? Though, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what I'm really saying is that this history of feminism is not as innocent as they make it out to be. Um, that w- right. women just wanted rights and here we, here we go. We, we got the rights cause they, you know, were persistent and they fought for them. And finally men listened. It's, you know, there's a whole lot more going on and it's sometimes really not the greatest things. That's right. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it is very clear in the Declaration of Sentiments um, how much vitriol they had for men, even mm-hmm. back then, even in 1848. The the vitriol is is present there and and obviously much more present now. So um, I second what you just said about how it's it's not what the media and the history books would like to tell you. So. Mm-hmm. And to kind of tie up the first wave, so uh, it does seem like most historians put the end of the first wave when women did get the right to vote in 1920. And then there's this kind of gap when um, obviously the the world wars were happening, um, and I guess even a little bit of Korea. And so the second wave officially, you know, begins in 1960. And... um, supposedly lasts until the early 1990s 
All right. Well, so do you uh, do you agree we should just take it up another another time? We should. We're both tired. And okay. Not. That's right.